Thank you very much. It's hard not to let those kind of introductions go to your head. But I've tried to learn through the years to pass it on to the Lord, for he's the one that's responsible for any ministry that any of us are privileged to offer. It's good to be here again with you tonight, and I feel, uh, I mean, we're going to do the second in the series on family life tonight, but uh, I want to just add a couple of words to what uh, Brother Dewey was talking about preparation for tomorrow, tonight, in the uh, warfare messages on or deliverance messages, whatever you want to call them. Anyway, we're going to hit the devil a lick. Uh, just to echo and enlarge a little on some of his comments. I've learned through the years that uh, the devil knows when this ministry is going to be conducted, and he tends to stir things up ahead of time. And one of the marks of my travels through the years has been when I come into a city and I'm going to get into this ministry, usually various places among members of the congregation and places in the city, all hell breaks out. You know, people, husband and wife start to fight and kids get sick and accidents happen and all that kind of stuff. So if that's been happening in your circle of influence, uh, rejoice. It means some good things are going to take place. More specifically, if you're feeling irritable, or for instance, if while I'm standing here tonight, something inside you wants to get mad at me, and that often happens. Uh, that's another good sign that the demons are running scared. And usually, uh, if that sort of thing happens, it means if you're a person like that, or if you're feeling fearful, uh, if you get all nervous and upset, or your stomach gets in a knot, or this sort of thing, when you think about these meetings, that's an encouraging sign that God is already starting to do something on your behalf. He's, Holy Spirit's beginning to work, getting no. Uh, because as Cory Ten Boom said in one of her little books, uh, Defeated Enemies, she said the fear of the demons is from the demons themselves. So if you're fearful about this ministry, or if you're fearful about the idea, or if you look at me and you get upset, or if funny things are happening around your house and things like that, that's the, the stirring up of demonic activity is a result of the pressure of the Holy Spirit uh, that's coming as a result of the ministry that's going to be here and of the praying and fasting that many of you have already been doing been doing. And from the things that Brother Dewey tells me and from what I've heard from some of you other folks, you've been very diligent to get ready, the leadership has, for these meetings. And I'm always encouraged when that happens. So I just felt like uh, uh, adding that word for you in preparation for tomorrow night. And uh, the more upset or the more difficult you may feel it is for you to come, uh, I want to tell you that's all the more reason to come because you're probably going to be one of those people that God is really going to help. And I fully expect tomorrow night uh, we'll teach on the ministry and then we're going to pray for the congregation afterwards. We're going to do it just in here, uh, leading you through prayers and taking authority over things and people as you sit here. And my conviction is that God will demonstrate the reality of the ministry and that a number of you will get help and others of you will get it in the days and weeks to come. The fact that you may come needing help and nothing happens tomorrow night or the next night doesn't necessarily mean God's not at work. Uh, it's just sort of getting things started. So I encourage you to be here tomorrow night or if you know friends who are oppressed or tormented or depressed or struggling with things that don't seem to yield to other kinds of prayer, uh, we encourage you to bring them tomorrow night and Tuesday. But tonight, well, then, we want to continue on the uh, second message on uh, 
covenant family life. We talked this morning about the uh, relationship between the sexes, how God in his provision and in his wisdom created us male and female and talked about the... Let me see, how many of you are, were not here this morning or here tonight? Raise your hands. Okay. Well, we were discussing, uh, uh, talking about the divinely ordained differences between men and women. Uh, how God created us male and female, gave us particular roles to perform. God gave man authority to lead and to be the protector of his family. And God made woman and gave her the characteristics uh, of gentleness and tenderness and so forth that enable her to function in the protected, sheltered uh, uh, position under the covering and authority of her husband. And then we talked about how it was the devil's, always the devil's attempt to do just the opposite of what God wants. If God wants men to have authority and to exercise it lovingly and carefully in their dominion over the earth as co-rulers with God over the kingdom, then the devil's intention is always to get man to abdicate that authority. While on the other hand, if God wants women to function under the shelter and covering of, of authority, God the devil tries to goad them into getting out from under that authority and assuming it for themselves, getting into an exposed place and then begin to suffer uh, the results of the attacks of the enemy that come uh, when they're out from under the spiritual covering that God desires for them. And we talked about how that's what the devil did with Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 3 when he tricked Eve into assuming the leadership decision-making role in the family and tempted her to take the fruit and we saw Adam abdicating his authority and retreating into the passive kind of a feminine role of letting his wife try to deal with the enemy at the door. And the tragic consequences of that, of course, was the fall, was the expulsion from the garden. Now we're going to be talking tonight about just some, in some very practical ways, on the theme of husbands and wives caring for each other. Now I want you to be aware that uh, while we're not going to be talking about evil spirits, uh, that in the difficulties that husbands and wives have, the devil is always at work trying to push us or goad us or trick us into doing the wrong thing in our relationship with, with one another. The, the family is under tremendous attack. I think we pointed out this morning how God chose the family as the primary social and governmental unit through which all, the all of the earth would be blessed. God could have peopled the earth other ways than by joining men and women in marriage and having them procreate children, but that's the way he chose to do it. And so because the family is so instrumental, so, so primarily instrumental in God's program for the kingdom of God on earth, it is a focal point of satanic attack. And all the more in our own day because of the breakdown of morals and of ethics and so forth and of uh, all of the forces that are militating against the family, forces basically which, which are demonic. And even leading anthropologists and sociologists uh, halfway give up on the family. I remember reading a magazine article a few years ago by a leading anthropologist who said, and she had a worldwide reputation for the books that she'd written, and she said something like this in an uh, article in, I think it was Cosmopolitan magazine. She said, if a husband and wife can stay together until the children are grown, that's about all anybody has a right to expect of marriage. And then uh, about that same period, my second daughter, Sherry, was, uh, had married uh, George Gunlock, who... Uh, is a very fine young man, and I have three children of their own. And George was finishing his degree in television journalism at the University of Florida, Gainesville. We were living in Florida at that time. Sharon and George had just been married a few months, and they used to come down to South Florida, to Fort Lauderdale area where we live, every once in a while on weekends. And George was finishing his degree, had just a few courses left to take, and he took a course, an elective course on the family that was being offered by 
the University of Florida. Now, you understand this is a secular university, but even so, I was shocked. He, he came one weekend bringing one of his textbooks on family life, and he said, he said, I wanted to bring this down to show you one of the sections in one of the chapters because you wouldn't believe it if uh, I didn't show it to you. And it was an example of the kind of teaching that is being offered in secular universities. And he, he opened this textbook and showed me uh, on uh, this one chapter that had to do with relationships between husbands and wives. And one whole section of the chapter was entitled, Eight Ways in Which Adultery Improves a Marriage. And I wouldn't have believed it had I not seen it. But that's the kind of... Uh, you understand when young couples who are struggling to reach the stage where they'll be ready for marriage and this is the kind of input they get from secular institutions you can understand why the divorce rate continues to soar and even among Christian families now it's uh, according to Larry Christensen who's the author of the Christian family the divorce rate among evangelical Christian couples is rapidly approaching the same rate as among non-Christians and all of these things are a sign of the enemy's attack all right, so uh, tonight we want to give us just some practical advice, and I'm giving it based on my own 35-year-old marriage, uh, which, as mentioned this morning, God has blessed us in a very wonderful way. We've had a very happy marriage, and that's not to say my wife and I haven't gone through our own struggles. Uh, in fact, uh, it was after I started teaching on family about 10 years ago, for the first time, we began to get into real uh, difficulties between us, and it was because... Uh, as I began to teach the word and I began to apply it in my own life, I saw there were areas when I'd, where I'd been failing my wife and areas where she had not understood how to handle her relationship with me and we had to begin to line those things up with the, with the word. And uh, I, used to, I used to teach and it was true. I used to say my wife and I have been married 25 years and we never had an argument. Uh, well, some people wouldn't believe that, but it was true. The thing was, though, it shouldn't have been true. <laughs> We should never have gone that long. We didn't have an argument because I was chicken. There were times when I knew I ought to be moving in a kind of leadership that would protect my wife from some things, but I didn't have the courage to do it. And so after I began to teach the word and began to see these things, then we began to have some confrontations, which incidentally ended up very healthy. And we came out stronger afterwards. But one of the devil's favorite lies is that if you get into any kind of head-to-head -head confrontation with your mate, then you know something terrible will happen in your marriage and so forth. So I want, while I'm speaking out of experience, the things I'm sharing with you out of experience and out of what I believe by God's grace to be a very successful marriage and family, uh, that's not to say that we all don't have to go through, uh, go through difficulties in marriage. Somebody once said, it's, true. it's not true that marriages were made in heaven. They say they come in kits and you've got to put them together. <laughs> so the plan for marriage is in heaven. But as Derek Prince has said, the problem isn't with the divine plan. The problem is with the building materials that God's got to work with. Heard one guy say one time that marriage is like eating mushrooms. You don't know until after you've tried it whether or not you've been poisoned. <laughs> And when you consider that it is a divine institution, and yet you consider the divorce rate, you can see, I mean, if it were in any other marriage or in any other category, you'd say, well, heck, there must be something wrong with the whole concept. Well, there isn't. It's a divine concept. And God's rule and plan for marriages and for homes has not changed one iota. The scriptures haven't changed. Teaching hasn't changed. Truth hasn't changed. But it's just at times it's very difficult for us to make it work because we're struggling as limited and weak and needy human beings in need of the grace of God. We struggle 
in order to try to learn how to fulfill those principles and how to resist the devil who's out to, you know, chew us up and spit us out at the same time. Somebody said marriage is an institution if you're ready for an institution. <laughs> All right. In a positive way, let me say that marriage, marriage really is a lifelong process of discovery about ourselves, husbands and wives. And I want to mention three things to keep in mind in what we're teaching tonight, three basic points. The first of all is that marriage is permanent, meant to be permanent. It is for a lifetime. That's why it's called a covenant. It's a lifelong covenant. And incidentally, a good definition of covenant, here's a good definition of covenant. Covenant means if I'm in covenant with you, covenant means your welfare at my expense. Your welfare at my expense. So the first thing to keep in mind is that marriage is for a lifetime. The second thing to keep in mind is that marriage is not a 50-50 proposition. It is a 90-10 proposition. If you're not willing to give it 90% at times, it's not going to work. Any young couple that goes into marriage, and some are doing it now, they even have written contracts drawn up that they sign before they get married, which is the height of stupidity. But if you go into a marriage thinking that, it's, that you're going to give it 50% and you're expecting your mate to give it 50%, I won't give your marriage six months until it's in trouble. Unless you go into it realizing you've got to give it 90 or 100%, regardless of what your mate does, then when you go through those rough spots or the first problems begin to appear, and they'll appear, then uh, uh, the thing begins to bankrupt. What happens is you're there with your 50%, and then one day things aren't going well, and you think your wife or your husband's only given 45%. And so you say, well, if they're only going to give 45%, I'll only give 45%, so you back off a little. And then they back off, and you back off, and separate. first thing you know, each one of you giving it 10%, and then the marriage is gone. Marriage isn't a 50-50 proposition. It's a 90-10 proposition. The third thing to remember is this, that Inside every husband, there is a little boy who never grew up and who never will grow up. And inside every wife, there's a little girl who never did grow up and who never will grow up. Now that's not all bad. It's real, but it's not all bad because all of us are a mixture of the good and bad. The good is that little girl or that little boy that's always there represents innocence and idealism. And those are really worthy qualities. That's why Jesus said, unless you turn and become as a little child, you'll not enter the kingdom of God. Childlikeness is a very wonderful trait. And to have that kind of inner idealism and innocence that's always there, that's wonderful. The thing that isn't wonderful is childishness or stubbornness or uh, what would we call it, uh, uh, juvenile delinquency sort of inside. So what we're struggling with between husbands and wives, on the one hand, there's that quality in each husband and wife which is childlike and innocent and full of idealism and needs to be protected and nurtured and cherished. On the other hand, you have to confront and work with and try to discipline and try to get rid of that, you know, that balky, bullying, selfish and stubborn uh, quality that we call childishness. 
So those are the three things to keep in mind. Marriage is a lot for a lifetime. It's not a 50-50 proposition. It's 90 to 10 proposition. And inside each of us, there's a little boy or a little girl who never grew up and who never will grow up. And that we need to be patient with one another while we cherish the good things and struggle against those things that need to be put to death. All right, turn with me to Ephesians chapter 5. I'm going to read just uh, not a whole lot of scripture tonight, but just to set the stage, a few of the verses that have to do with family life. And the first uh, major point we're going to be talking about for a while is that we're going into what I call the, the do's and don'ts of caring for one another. And the first, we're going to be talking about husbands and their responsibilities. And we're going to be talking about do's and don'ts for husbands. So I want to read this passage out of uh, Ephesians 5, beginning with uh, chapter 25 through 29, where Paul says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her sake, to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as they love their own bodies. Uh, so very beautiful uh, passage here where Paul relates the relationship of the husband to wife as the relationship of Christ to the church. So I want to list now eight, uh, eight uh, do's for husbands. Uh, th eight things, men, that you ought to do in behalf of your wife. It won't take long to cover them, but they're all, I think, are important. Number one is, men, you ought to always to honor your wife before other people, before other men. That means by your actions and by your words that you show your respect and love for her in public. That you praise her in public. That you be attentive to her. That you show her small courtesies that other people can see. I don't care how long you've been married, your wife will still appreciate it if you open the car door for her or if you open the door uh, ahead for her just to show the fact that you honor and respect her. Now that doesn't mean that you always feel like she's worthy of your respect if you've had a hard day and uh, we all have those times. Sometimes after all these years I still marvel at how God could have made women the way he did. I'm not, there's still some things I don't understand <laughs> but all I know is that's the way he did and I love my wife even though there's some things about her I don't suppose I'll ever totally understand. But I've tried through the years always to honor and to respect her and to show her respect in public. To treat her like a lady. For one thing, men, she's worthy of your respect if for no other reason that she married you. That shows she had some good sense right there. So you may not feel like her at that particular time that she's very smart for anything else, but if she was, uh, if she was bright enough and sharp enough and wise enough and in love enough to agree to marry you, she's got some wonderful qualities. Right there. So the first do, husbands, is that you are to honor her before men. Uh, I put a note in scripture here from the Psalm to womanhood in Proverbs 31. I'll see what the verse was. I can't recall it from memory. That's a good... Uh, passage to read, men, that uh, Proverbs 31, when you're not feeling real good about your wife, to read that uh, beautiful psalm that begins with verse 10 in Proverbs 31. 
the particular uh, verse is verse 28. And this is a psalm to a woman of noble character. Verse 28 says, Her children arise and call her blessed, her husband also, and he praises her. So to honor your wife publicly. Second uh, suggestion for the proper way to treat your wife, and that is to respect her feelings. Now we mentioned this morning the differences between male and female, how man is dominated by his intellect and a woman is dominated by her emotions. And we pointed out how these were characteristics, not faults. Uh, women approach life emotionally, intuitively, and men tend to approach life rationally. Uh, they think their way through situations or they analyze situations on the basis of certain things they think while a woman will analyze a situation on the basis of what she feels. Now she doesn't know why she feels the way she feels, but that's the way she feels. And the struggle men have is that they many times want their wives to think the way they do, but their wives never will. A, a woman approaches things from an emotional standpoint. Uh, she has stronger feelings about things that men do. And uh, those feelings cause her to be sensitive in certain ways. Now those qualities are godly womanly qualities. They are the necessary qualities for bearing and rearing children and having the kind of love and gentleness and sensitivity to the children's needs as well as to her husband's needs. Those are noble qualities. The, the, this quality of being uh, emotion uh, controlled primarily or dominated by emotions. It's not a fault. It's a characteristic. It's a characteristic. But with that, women struggle more because of their strong feelings and their emotional sensitivity. They struggle more uh, with feelings of low self-esteem. It's much easier for a woman to feel guilty, whether she is guilty of anything or not, but it's a lot, low self-esteem is like a plague in America today among men and women, especially among women. Somebody said, you ask a man where he got the roast, he'll say, I got it at that supermarket. You ask a woman where she got the roast, she'll say, why, what's wrong with it? <laughs> now, that stems out of her immediate reaction of feeling guilty whether there's anything there or not. You see, well, the very fact that you pick up on that uh, in a humorous way indicates that you realize what I'm talking about. So because of that insecurity and that struggle against guilt, it's important, men, for you to understand that and to cover your wife in it and to be supportive of her and to be encouraging to her and to be the lifter of her head and to help build up her self-esteem uh, by respecting her feelings and by understanding uh, the third do for husbands is that, husbands, we need to help our wives rule in their realm to manage their area of life with confidence. And be careful that you don't put your wife down, that you, in your thinking, you're going to think, especially if, if uh, I realize many wives work now and they have the double responsibility of trying to add to the income plus take care of the home and children and so forth, but speaking about the domestic responsibilities that wife, wives have. One of the problems men tend very casually to do is to slip into a kind of, uh, of uh, superciliousness in which they kind of regard the woman's responsibilities with the home and the housekeeping and the kids and so forth as a kind of uh, less important existence than their careers and the job and the world that they're moving in. And so very subtly, men, you tend to put your wife down. You act as if in a way that her concerns aren't important. All you husbands know this happens. You'll come home and you've had your busy times and work and your wife's had a struggle and when you come home, you'd like a little rest and peace and quiet, but she's carrying some things she's going to have to dump on you. 
because they are a real concern to her. Now, they don't seem always to be a great concern for you. But uh, a light that won't work or an oven that shorts out or a garage door that won't close properly, these are big concerns for a woman in her realm because she has to wrestle with that kind of stuff uh, all day long and they amount to tremendous frustrations. They build up and she has a right to be concerned about it. Now, I know you're out making a million dollars in your sales organization or you're planning great things in your career and so the garage door that doesn't work properly doesn't have a very high priority on your list but it does on hers. And you need somehow, we need somehow to think in our wives' terms about those things. That, and by that, to be, sortive, to be supportive and to help her manage and rule in the realm of responsibilities that she has. Now, a woman's horizons, uh, wife's horizons, tend to be a little closer around the house because of the nature of her responsibilities. In many cases, a lot of times, she's not out there trying to take on the whole world. And her view of things is naturally more circumscribed by the four walls of the home she lives in and the responsibility with the children. So her horizons fall closer to home, but, but her realm is, is just as important as yours is. And you need to understand that. It, along with that, you need to reinforce her authority with, her, with the children. Now, it's true the man is the one that's supposed to be the one who disciplines and he's supposed to set the rules of authority, but while he's away, it's a woman, it's the wives, men, who have to look after the kids. And uh, there's a lot of hellish situations in America today because husbands and wives aren't united in the way they handle the children. I was in a, a big charismatic preacher's home in state in the Midwest some years ago. He's out of the ministry now. His marriage fell apart and he got an immorality and a lot of other things. But in those days, he was a highly successful minister and I was holding meetings in his church and I was a guest in their home. And I knew that tragedy was coming somewhere down the line because I saw the way the children were being handled in the home. And the wife tried to speak to me. Her husband was out. I was there at the house one day and she was trying to share her frustration with me. They had these kids in their early teen years and the kids were kind of sullen and rebellious and so forth and she was always exasperated and she said if I could just get you to talk to my husband said he he never will back me up when I try to discipline the children or when I try to correct them and she said it just drives me bananas she said I just don't know what I'm doing it just drives me to distraction and I didn't know whether she was overplaying you know whether she just had a bad day and it was a you know was a she was over stating her case or not which can often happen when you're trying to counsel with people and they're under a lot of frustration they make it sound worse than it really is but that night we were sitting at the supper table or came time for dinner and and the wife called uh, the minister and I into dinner and the children we came and sat down the kids were upstairs watching television boy and a girl and uh, so she called them again and they still didn't come and we were sitting waiting and she had to call them a third time finally after about five minutes they came straggling down the stairs looking kind of grumpy and sat down and <sighs> sighed you know and and the wife you know spoke rather sharply to him she said now you children should have come the first time I called you we've got a guest in her home and so forth you know and she was you know and she was upset and then I sat there and listened to her husband say oh honey stop nagging the kids they're good kids don't pester them and her eyes just flooded with tears and she turned and stalked off into the kitchen well those kids they dearly loved their dad they thought he's a great fellow they thought their mother was a nag but he was undercutting her authority with the thing and making her role as a mother almost impossible he wouldn't exercise any kind of leadership or discipline and she was the ogre who was trying to keep things in line and no wonder she was frustrated and unfortunately the, say he had other problems which I suspect contributed to that one 
but eventually the marriage, the family broke up and he was discredited in his, uh, in his ministry as well. But men, we need to make a point to help our wives rule and manage in the realm that's theirs and be careful not to put them down, to reinforce their authority with the children, to help uh, provide them with financial security and stability. A wife needs to know what she can count on in the way of money to spend. I've known a case of good Christian families where men have no sensitivity at all about that. And the wife is always feeling guilty whether or not there's enough money to buy groceries or if there's enough money for her to buy a dress or something for herself and so forth. Always insecure because the husband uh, does not provide for her the kind of stability uh, and kind of information that she needs to know how to manage. And most good Christian wives will try their darndest to manage well on a very limited budget if they have enough information and know what's, uh, what they're, uh, what they're, what they're uh, allowed to do. But it's not fair, men, to confront them with bills after when the bills come in if they haven't had any knowledge ahead of time about what it was proper for them to spend. And yet there's a lot of instability in Christian marriages because men fail to do this, fail to to help their wives manage competently in the realm that is their God-given responsibility. Fourth point, the fourth do for husbands. Place some loving boundaries around your wife for her own protection. Now what do I mean by that? Several things. One is, there are certain things that you need to share with your wife, but there are certain things that you shouldn't share. That is, in the way of certain burdens. And don't, don't dump unfair burdens on your wife. Now, it's good to have good communication in your marriage, but there are certain... I had to learn this the hard way, that there were times when I'd be upset and frustrated about things, and Alice and I have always communicated real well, and I didn't have enough sense to go dump on my own pastor or some trusted Christian friend. I'd dump the whole thing on her. She loves me. She loves the family. But her shoulders weren't broad enough to carry that sort of thing. And man, she'd really get under it. I'd feel better right away because I talked about it, you know. And she got to feeling guilty about her part in it. And I realized this went off and on. I don't mean in any great, big, serious, marriage-threatening ways. But I realized that by my own lack of sensitivity at times that I unfairly dumped things on, hers that, on her that a woman shouldn't have the responsibility to carry. Uh, women tend to worry about certain things more than men do. And uh, even though sometimes those concerns are only temporary and a man will work his way through them. But the time he's handling it, uh, if he's not wise and careful, he'll dump a lot of that on his wife. Well, the next two or three days, he may have worked his way through it and it's okay. Man, she's still carrying the burden. I remember one time when Bob Mumford and I got in a tiff about something. And uh, you may think the guys that Bob and Charles and Ern and Derek and I are in a relationship we've had through the years that it's all sweetness and light. It hasn't been. We've had some head-to-head slugfests, and it's only by the grace of God that we've stayed together. And there was a time we were in some kind of situation. I got all, up, got all upset with about Bob and for being kind of overbearing, and Bob's real enthusiastic about things. I told him one time, I said, Bob, when you come into the room, you take up 95% of the space. <laughs> well, that's just Bob. He's trying to like to relate, to relate to a whirling dervish, you know. And Bob knows that. And we love one another, and we're good friends, and it's no problem now. We've talked with it. But I remember going home one day after we'd had a council meeting of the five of us, and, uh, and I was all upset. And I said something like this to Alice, you know. I said, I, Mumford gives me a pain, I said. I, you know, I shared a little what we'd gone through. Well, next day or two, I was over and everything was fine. She struggled for weeks to forgive Bob Mumford, you know, because uh, uh, I presented him in a poor light. Well, I should never have burdened her with that, you see. 
Uh, you, men, your wives are so loyal. You know, they, you carry things, man, you tell them about some of those things. They'll carry it like it's ten, ten times as heavy as it is on you. So a part of, of placing the kind of loving boundaries around your wife is that there are certain things that you don't need to share, certain things they need to be protected from. Uh, limit the concerns that she carries. And sometimes your wife will pick up things and begin to fret and worry. You may have to move in and say, honey, let me worry about that. That ought to be your concern. It might be a bill or it might be some other sort of thing. But uh, if you will move in and assume the responsibility, often you can lift the burden off of her. And it makes it a life a lot easier for her. Don't ask her to make decisions that are decisions that you ought to make. Uh, the decisions that are out of her realm. This is what the, this thing that got Eve in trouble with the snake. She should never been there at the door dealing with that nasty serpent. Uh, as I said this morning, Adam, when the snake appeared, he should have stood up and pushed his, side, his wife aside and said, Honey, I'll handle this situation. And then the whole history of the world might have been different if he'd have done that. Uh, but he laid upon his wife, by his own abdication, a responsibility for decisions that she shouldn't have to make. So, fourth thing we're talking about is to place some loving boundaries around our wives, men. The fifth thing, I won't say a lot about it, but it's important. The fifth thing, men, is communicate. Talk to your wife. If you want to make your wife feel guilty, just clam up. You know. And men, we've all done this. We use it as a weapon. And we're like in the cowboy movies, the old silent cowboys. They only talk to their horse. They don't talk to their wife. So you'll come home and you're kind of grumpy and you want to sort of put your wife down and so you'll go, ah. she'll say, honey, what's the matter? Oh, nothing. Ah, ah. You know. And the longer you go without communicating, the guiltier she'll begin to feel. Now, I realize at times it's not easy to communicate. Now, I say, Alice, I've had a very extraordinarily happy marriage by God's grace. But every once in a while when the devil gets in, and you all know situations like that, when the atmosphere is so tense, not particularly because anybody's done anything bad, although it may be either husband or wife has acted unkindly or gotten upset about something, but sometimes the devil just has gotten the thing stirred up and you walk in the room, it's like you feel like you're walking on eggs, shells. You know, you want to be careful. Anything you say or do is going to be misunderstood. And through times like that, where it really takes a terrific effort to say, honey, we need to talk. You know, I don't know what it is, if there's something between us or whether it's just a devil jumping on it, but let's sit down and talk about it. And I confess there have been times like that. For two or three days, I'd stew and wouldn't do that. I'd just be out of sorts enough that I, well, well if she's upset with me, okay, you know. Uh, but one way you maintain harmony in your home and a certain equilibrium is that you communicate. And sometimes it's all the more difficult if there is some unspoken resentment. And, you know, wives know how to communicate that too, husbands. We come home sometimes, the wives slamming the dishes around and banging the pots and pans. She doesn't have to say anything. You get the word that things aren't all right in the house, you know, when the cabinet doors are slamming and this sort of thing. Uh, and so there's the time when the pressure is really on where you really need to ask for God's grace to be able to communicate and open up the whole thing. And usually when you really need to do that the most, it's the hardest time to do it. When everything's all lovey-dovey and everything's relaxed, you can whisper sweet nothings in each other's ears and marriage is wonderful and God's in his heaven and all's right in the world. But when the devil's stirring things up and there's that 
in the atmosphere, then it's not nearly so easy to communicate. But if you keep silent, that just makes it worse. Six do for husbands. Husbands, avoid living by a double standard. Don't you assume privileges in the marriage that you won't also grant your wife. And a lot of men do this. I get, I get a lot of mail uh, across my desk, people with problems, this sort of thing. They've read my books or they read something in a magazine, in a new line that I've written. And a lot of, you know, women don't have anybody to talk to her. They can't talk to their husbands or they don't have a pastor. They can't talk to them, so they write us letters. And I've gotten several of them through the years where the wife was complaining about her spiritual leader husband who's out having ministering in the word and having lunches with other men of God and so forth and she's home changing diapers and the babies and wiping their runny noses and scarcely has enough food in the house to eat and so forth and uh, all she gets is spiritual advice from her husband honey while you're here with the kids don't forget to pray and read your bible while I'm gone you know well I'm sure in some cases the letters were exaggerated but it makes a point that it's awfully easy for a man to assume certain privileges in the marriage that he's entitled to lunch out with his business associates or things and a, a certain amount of that's legitimate but he expects his wife to live at a level sometimes almost as some kind of slave or servant just saying well you know woman's place is in the home keep them barefoot pregnant and in the kitchen as the saying goes you know uh, and it's a very subtle thing even when you're trying to be noble and trying to be understanding trying to be the kind of husband that you ought to be uh, that thing will crop up I have a doctor friend down in Florida. We were, he and his wife came over to see us one day when we were living there. And they, he's a successful physician and they have a lovely home on a canal and he has a boat and this sort of thing in, uh, in Fort Lauderdale. And we were sitting in the room talking and his wife was fussing about the old Chrysler she was driving. They had a nice family car that he used, but the car she ran the errands in was this old Chrysler. And she was saying, she says, I don't know why Bill won't get me another car. And he said, oh, that car is good enough. You know, I'll get you around town. She says, yeah, but things go wrong with it. He said, well, you can call me, you know. And then we went on talking a while, and all at once he started telling me about the new $16,000 boat he'd bought. Uh, he'd seen this boat for a year or two and so forth, and, and he'd traded in his other boat, and he'd got this 32-foot boat and just paid, this, I don't know, 28-foot, something like that. He got this $16,000 cruise and his lovely boat, and he was wanting to take us out on it and go fishing and so forth. Uh, and I couldn't help but realize, you know, put the two parts of the conversation together. And I said, Bill, you realize what you're saying? I said, he said, what's that? And I said, well, you're reluctant to buy your wife even a better used car, but what about your $16,000 boat? <laughs> Boy, he got red-faced and began to splutter and spew, and if he hadn't been a good Christian, I think he would have probably walked me one. But after a minute, he calmed down, and he said, well, you rascal, what'd you bring that up for? But he was caught on the double standard, you see. The boat was important to him. And uh, they used the boat for vacation. They'd take trips over to the Bahamas and things like that, and his wife went with him, and they had a happy marriage, basically. But it was just one of those examples where he was operating by a double standard. He didn't think twice about spending $16,000 for a new boat, but he wouldn't, wouldn't add a couple of thousand dollars trade-in with that old Chrysler to get her a dependable car. And yet he's a fine, fine Christian with a fine ministry on his own, as well as being a fine physician. But men, we need to watch it. That is to not, we need to avoid the double standard. Uh, the eighth, the seventh, number seven of the dues for a husband. Men, that is very simple. That is to pray not only for your wife, but to pray with her and to do it regularly. I don't know why it is among Christian couples that that's so difficult. 
I won't embarrass you by asking for a show of hands, but lots and lots of charismatic, I've done, I've done this in seminars at various places, saying, how many of you husbands uh, pray for your wife and kids? And every hand will go up. And I'll say, okay, now how many of you husbands pray regularly with your wife? And there won't be a fraction of the hands go up. This is one of the devil's favorite attacks is that somehow you'll find excuses. You'll go off and have your own private devotions or your wife will, but it's so difficult to pray with your wife. And it's something even Alice and I have struggled with through the years. And every once in a while we elapse with it and go a week or so where we don't really have, you know, a really meaningful time together other than just, you know, giving one another a hug and praying for God to bless us as I go out the house to the office or something. A lot of the time, when it's working well after breakfast, we all sit there. And I'm, I'm fortunate enough that I don't have to be at the office at a given time. But uh, we'll have a devotional reading and spend time praying for the family and other things. And it's always a very wonderful and blessed time. Uh, a very precious friend, when we first got married years ago, a blind Methodist minister, gave us a copy of Thomas Akempis' Imitation of Christ in a particular uh, beautiful edition, uh, translation of it. And uh, we read regularly through that book. It's been a tremendous inspiration. It's, it's divided into daily devotions. And uh, there are a lot of other good devotional books, but that's just a classic that's been a great blessing to us. And I find in my own spiritual life, in our lives, in our own family, when we consistently do that, when we'll have that 10 or 15 minutes, sometimes it might stretch into half an hour, an hour, we really get into things with the Lord. But it's a time where uh, we deliberately give our attention together to the Lord. And for us... Most often it's right at the breakfast uh, table. And sometimes again at night or other times during the day. But it's so much easier, men, to pray for your wife than it is to pray with her. Now that's not to say that praying for her isn't important. Of course it is. But to be a priest and a pastor to your own wife. A lot of men of God, a lot of elders, a lot of leaders, house group leaders, charismatic teachers and others will minister to everybody except their own family. And... Uh, have more problems within the... They can be a pastor or a priest almost anybody else easier than they can their own wife. And I understand that. That's a real struggle. Your wife knows you better than anybody else does. Other people that come to you for counsel, uh, they think you're somebody spiritually mature. You know, you're a charismatic or you're a prayer group leader or you're an elder in the church. and You have spiritual authority. So they come to you with some deference and so forth. But your wife sees you at your worst as well as your best. And it's not as easy to be priest or pastor to your wife. But men, we need to pray. Not only for, but with our wives to be priest and pastor. The eighth do, and we won't, uh, this isn't a, a seminar on marital sex, but the eighth point is, men, that you need to be a gentle and a fervent lover to your wife. Sex is a very powerful force in human life and existence and among Christians as well as anybody else. And it can be used either to bring real exaltation and blessing into a marriage or it can be used to humiliate and to shame. And uh, years of counseling for deliverance, nothing you'd be, maybe you wouldn't be amazed. But I'll tell you, the devil is into Christian marriages, marriages to a terrible degree in the sex relationship between husband and wife. And, uh, and it's awfully easy for husbands not only to be insensitive, sometimes to be downright brutal in the demands that they make on their wives with shame and, humili and humiliate them. You might want to read 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 7. That has some good advice about that, about how Paul talks about husbands and wives and their relationship, their sexual relationship to one another. Okay, now we want to mention briefly, husbands, we're hang in there. You wives have just sort of been having to listen to this advice. Your turn's coming, so don't get... 
impatient. There's a few do's for husbands. I mean, a few don'ts for husbands. We've talked about eight do's. Now here's, you understand these are just selective. We could spend days on this. In fact, some of this I'll put in a book one day. I, was, I think it was, uh, Dewey's wife was asking me, Ronald was asking me today if I'd written anything, a book on the family. And I said, I'm about halfway through a book manuscript with it, but I've had that half a book for about six or eight years and I haven't gotten around to finishing it. Uh, but someday I will and some of this will be in it. All right, here's some don'ts for husbands. Husbands, don't tease or belittle or criticize your wife in public. It's a very cowardly and a very cruel thing to do. And I want to be... ...cruel thing to do. It would have been just about the same, so I'd taken a whip and cracked her across the back with it. You know, because uh, it was a very unloving... And I had to... I repent, confess, and ask her forgiveness, and I've tried to avoid that sort of thing since. But it's something that we need to be careful of, men, and that is don't tease or belittle or criticize your wife in public, especially when you understand that I say that it is a cowardly and it is a cruel thing to do. And I don't think any Christian husband really wants to be cruel or cowardly. Uh, second thing, and this may sound kind of simple, but men, don't expect your wives to be a mechanical genius. Men have, and there are some wives who have mechanical dexterity. They like to fix the toaster, things like that. But they're, God love them, they are a rare exception. The average woman, this is not her realm. This is not the way she thinks or acts. And, we bother. and so instead of getting mad at your wife when she forgets to fill up the car with gasoline and so forth, you take it on yourself to keep the tank full, okay? This is one way that you can serve your wife. And don't expect her to do that. You might say, why is it that you don't? Here she is. She gets in the car. She's going to get her hair fixed. And she runs out of gas. And you blow your stack and say, well, why'd you let the gas tank? You know what? She's, going, she's not going to worry about the gas tank. She's going to say, you don't care how she looks. Because she didn't make it to the hair appointment. You see, women don't think the same as men. She's thinking about getting her hair done to look pretty for you and to look nice and to have self-respect and better self-esteem. She's not thinking about the gas tank. So this is something you can do. Don't, exp you know, you can handle those things. You can see that the car is serviced and taken care of. Don't expect your wife to be a mechanical genius. A third final thing, there's a whole lot of them, but we'll just end with this. Don't compare your wife to other women, especially your mother. <laughs> If you do compare, make sure it's favorable. You know, honey, you're the prettiest girl in town. It's all right to do it that way. Okay. Now, wives, it's your turn. Here we go. <laughs> Here are some do's and don'ts for wives. Let me read again from Ephesians 5 just to set the stage because God, Paul says some things about wives' responsibility. Understand all this doesn't, none of this sounds very supernatural, does it? It doesn't sound real spiritual, but I'll tell you, it can make the difference between hell and heaven in your home. <laughs> Verse 22, Ephesians 5. Wives, submit, your, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. And now as the church submits to Christ, so wives so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. And I'm not going to be teaching on submission, although it's a, when it's handled properly, it's a beautiful teaching. And when you understand that submission is always unto the Lord. But anyway, that's a good way to 
I like Kenneth Taylor's translations of this wife where he says, Wives, submit to your husbands to the Lord. In the Living Bible, he says, Kenneth Taylor translates and says, Wives, fit in with your husband's plans. I think that's a real good translation. Mainly because a lot of wives don't do it. Which brings us really to the first point. I'll use that Kenneth Taylor's translation. Wives, fit in with your husband's plans. That's number one, do. Stay with your husband. And that means to stay by his side. It doesn't mean to try to get your husband to stay with you. Now, there's a difference. We have a precious Methodist couple of friends of ours through the years we were staying with their home up in North Carolina, vacation home one time. Alice and I were spending a week with them. And the woman uh, uh, who was, they were both fine Methodists, and she had some real, she was a sharp gal. She had real spiritual discernment. And we were talking about a, a couple we knew, another family, a couple of mutual friends, where the woman was a dominant uh, spiritual person. You know, the husband was kind of a, you know, meek little fellow, and the wife was strong in the Lord. And, and Mary said this about the couple. She said, you know, when you see them, you always get the feeling that he's with her. And I thought, you know, that's really discerning. You get the feeling that he's with her. Well, now, maybe women's livers would think that is great. But I think the way God has got things set up, the way that man is to lead, and man is to be the one who is the protector, that women, you ought to stay with your husbands. You ought to be with him, not insisting that he be with you, if you understand what I mean. And you'll see, I, if you dwell on this and pray about it, you get sensitized in this area. You'd be amazed when you, you look at couples that you know are just sometimes casual people. walking. Along. You can tell whether or not in their marriage they become one. I've known people and see them. Sometimes you can just see them getting on or getting off an airplane. It's like they may have been married 30 years, but they're never really together. It's they're still, they're still independent people. He's him and she's her, and they may be sitting side by side. But, you know, the purpose of marriage is, as the scripture says, the two shall become one flesh. And that just doesn't mean physically or sexually. It means through the years, personalities meld together where there is a, there is a unit in the marriage, in the couple. You know, many couples don't realize this, but God is more interested in preserving the marriage than he is in making the husband or wife happy, particularly. It's the marriage that's the important thing. It's the marriage is the unit, is the container uh, for the rearing of children out of which, uh, as we said, out of which creation moves and governments rise and fall and all the rest. Uh, what's the old saying? The hand that rocks the cradle rules the world. Uh, God is interested in the institution of marriage. Marriage is his idea. And we get the idea that it's only for the pleasant convenience of a husband or for a wife. But that's not enough reason for a marriage to break up just because it's not convenient for the husband or wife or because they may not feel good about it. It's the marriage is the thing that needs to be maintained. That's the thing that's, that uh, God is concerned about. And for that to happen, there has to be the pro proper equilibrium as it's described for us in scriptures. So wives, the first thing I'm saying is like what Kenneth Taylor says, fit in with your husband's plans. Stay with your husband. A second do for wives. Wives, be your husband's champion. Be his booster. Always be in his corner. You know, you may not realize it, but it's a confession husbands are reluctant to make, but it's true. Husbands have terribly fragile egos. All men do. Now, they may be very macho in their appearance, and they may be able to press 250 pounds and run in the marathon, or they may be successful in business and all the rest, but they still have very, very fragile egos. And uh, a wife, by a word or by a look, can either can make all the difference 
to her husband. And I want to encourage you to, to be your husband's champion. Be the lifter of his head. Be his number one booster. We'll say a little more about that under another point. The third do for wives. Cultivate gratitude for your husband and learn how to express it to him. You can't imagine. Maybe you can, but many times we don't realize how important that is. I can recall days, low days in my own life in ministry, when it seemed like the only good thing that happened to me all day was when my wife said to me, Honey, I thank God for you. And there have been times when that's made my day, when nothing else would. Gratitude is such an important quality in family life, and you need, it needs to be cultivated. There's so many, uh, we fall in, especially a marriage is kind of getting a rut and so forth, we fall into the habit of cataloging and listing the things that are wrong more than the things that are right. It's so much easier to hear the devil list all the things that are bad about your marriage. I've used this in counseling sometimes when couples have come and so forth and they've got their complaints against one another and uh, I've used a technique that once in a while it works it doesn't always but I say why don't you for the next five minutes each one of you tell me the things you appreciate about one another oftentimes they're so mad they don't want to do that but if you can get them to do it I'll say you know remember the things you married your husband for what are the things that you're grateful for in your marriage and it's because they've all been centered down on the negatives. Well, he doesn't do this, or she doesn't say, she said this about me, or this sort of thing. They've been making all the wrong kind of lists. So wives, cultivate gratitude for your husband and then express it to him. Do number four for wives. Show an intelligent interest in his work. A lady came to me one time, I remember in Amarillo, Texas, we were in deliverance ministry, and she came up afterwards for counseling and or asked me a question or something she'd wanted to sit in proxy for her husband who she said needed deliverance and so I was talking to her about it. it's obvious she didn't respect her husband he wasn't at the meeting and I said what does your husband do and she says oh I don't know he works in an office or a factory or something and, I, and she was about 45 50 and I thought I said Linda you mean you don't know for sure what your husband well he's in some sort of business you know and I tried to encourage her I said you need to you know, I began to take his side, and, and she got upset with me. And finally she stormed off, and she said, Well, I just, I'm going to have to spend the rest of my life married to a bumpkin. You know. So uh, she had no understanding of his work or of his job and no respect for him in it. So show an intelligent interest in your husband's work. See, you need to remember that a husband, he's not working just for his, himself, he's working. We work for our wives and for our kids. That's a part of the purpose of it. That's what it means to make a home. That's what it means to be a provider. Uh, so that leads to the next one, which is for wives. The fifth one is to do is, and that is to look for evidences of your husband's love apart from his words. Now this comes back to characteristics we were talking about this morning. We didn't mention this, but men tend to be less vocal than women in most cases. Now there are some guys that can be very loquacious and Sometimes I sit on an airplane and there's a guy sitting behind me, two guys sitting there, and one of them will talk incessantly for 600 miles as we travel across the country. And I wish, oh God, shut him up so I can take a nap, you know. But that's not as often true as it is of women. Women tend by nature to be more vocal than men. And they tend, because of that, tend to lie. And it's understandable, men, that wives want to hear us tell them that we love them. But a man tends to show his love lots of other ways than just in his words. And so, wives, one of the ways you can enhance your own marriage is that you make it a point to look for ways that your husband is demonstrating his love besides 
saying he loves you. Now, it's important to communicate that. You can, but don't throw up your hands in, you know, in, uh, in uh, giving up if he isn't the guy who can always whisper sweet nothings in your ear. And you realize that he's showing his love by his, the fact that he married you, he's made a home for you, he's working for you and the children, he's a faithful husband, regardless of the fact that he may not always be able to verbalize it. Most men find it difficult to articulate their feelings a lot of the time. Some of you know Jimmy Moore, who teaches a lot on the family, Brother Jim Moore. He was talking about this one day. He said, I know, he was counseling with a couple who the, they were thinking about a divorce because the husband had got mad at the wife and hauled off and socked her one. And she was shocked at the fact that he would dare strike her. But Jim said in, in, in counseling with a couple, he said, it was so obvious that the wife was so articulate and the husband was so inarticulate that he could scarcely get two or three words out. He said, I know good and well what happened. He said, they got in an argument and the, and the wife had all the ammunition. And finally she kept, you know, ripping him apart with her tongue and he finally couldn't take it anymore and he hauled off and socked her one. Well, uh, I'm not recommending that. <laughs> but it's a good example of the fact that women tend to be more articulate than husbands. And a woman, obviously, you've all seen this, some little bitty gal who can just browbeat a big six foot five husband with her tongue. She can rip him apart and make him a little cowering bowl of jelly just by the use of her tongue. Because women, in most cases, are more articulate than men. Well, that, women, you need to realize that your husband may not be able to match your uh, vocal expression. And so you need to look for evidences of his love apart from the things that he says. Do number six for wives. Learn to honor your husband's attitude and perspective and try to make it your own. That's related to number one, fit in with your husband's plans. Let me read you a little scripture out of Ecclesiastes. You don't have to turn to it if I can find where Ecclesiastes is. In the fourth chapter. We're talking about honoring your husband's attitudes and perspective and make it your own. In other words, identify with him in his endeavors and be supportive. And this passage in chapter 4, it's not talking particularly about husbands and wives, but it fits. Verses 9 and 10. Two are better than one because they have a good return for their work. If one falls down, his friend can help him up. But pity the man who falls and has no one to help him up. And uh, this really fits with husbands and wives. Again, in counseling with couples, and occasion, even in my own marriage, I've run into it, that uh, it upsets me sometimes if I'm trying to articulate a position to Alice about something that means a great deal to me, and her initial response is that she will take the other side. And that doesn't mean she's not entitled to her opinion, but, but I'm, sometimes when I'm talking to her, I'm wanting her support and encouragement about a certain situation, and unthinkingly, she will take an adversarial position, which is exactly what I do not need. And it's no help to me. Now, that doesn't happen often, but it does happen with couples. And uh, uh, without meaning to, a wife will side with her husband's adversaries. Here's an, it's, this is a hypothetical example. Here's a husband who's a salesman, and he comes home, and he says, I really worked hard at landing that new account today and did everything I knew, and I didn't get it, and the boss really chewed me out. Well, now, the wife has an opportunity here to do one of two things. She can either... Uh, take her husband's perspective and attitude as her own and try to be an encouragement to him, or she can take an adversarial position. 
Suppose she takes an adversarial position. He says, you know, I worked hard at Atlantic County. I didn't get it. I goofed, and now my boss is mad at me, and he chewed me out. So the wife may agree with the boss. Well, I warned you if you weren't careful, you'd lose that account. And that's really the kind of thing that'll make his day, isn't it? But you know, wives will do that. It's an opportunity. If they're nettle, you know, it gives them an advantage. Here's something they can jump on the, you know, uh, let's beat George day, you know, for doing that. Or she can say, which would be much to be desired, she can say, that's okay, honey. I know you did your best. Don't worry. You'll win it next time. And that can make all the difference, you see. Wives, you, you can't imagine how important it can be that you take your husband's side. You see it from his perspective and line up with his way of looking at it and be an encouragement to him. You can either build him up or tear him down according to your attitude. Let me tell you this, ladies. It is a rare husband who can ever rise above his wife's expectations of him. One of the greatest things you can do for your husband is to believe in him and to believe that he's going to do better and more and be more successful and be a better father and be a better husband, even though at times he doesn't give evidence of it. If you don't expect him to be more than he is or to make progress or to encourage him with it, he won't. I don't believe there's a man in a thousand who has the emotional or psychological or spiritual ability to rise above his wife's expectations. And if you expect your husband to be a bumpkin or a ninny or a nobody, that's what he'll turn out to be if he stays with you. He may choose another alternative. There may be other women out there who think he's wonderful and are willing to take a chance on that. That leads to the final do. This is number seven. Ladies, remember that your own security, your own welfare, your own well-being may well depend on your husband's success in fulfilling his leadership role in your life. Your own welfare is dependent on how well he's able to cover you and to be to you what a husband is supposed to be. And so for no other reason except the selfish reason that you want things to be better, that's reason enough to try to encourage your husband to be a better husband in ways that are proper. Because if he fails in his responsibility, like Adam failed, you're going to be in trouble anyway. He'll leave you uncovered and exposed and you'll be subject to deception and attack and so forth. So it's to your own advantage. So the final number seven do is that for wives to remember your own security and welfare are dependent on your husband's success in fulfilling his leadership role in your life. Now, very quickly, I want to just uh, mention one, two, three, four don'ts for wives, and then I got some, a couple of things to say in conclusion. These are some don'ts for wives. Wives, don't make a habit of complaining. Now, that doesn't mean you don't have a right to complain, and at times it's not legitimate. What I'm saying is don't make a habit of it. Uh, I want to read a couple of verses out of Proverbs. Proverbs 25, verse 24. Better to live on the corner of the roof than share a house with a quarrelsome wife. <laughs> you get the idea that the guy who wrote the Proverbs, these are Solomon's Proverbs. 
Of course, he had more than one wife, and a lot of them probably complained. And so he was, he was writing out of some exasperation, but there's an eternal truth here. Better to live on the corner of a roof than share a house with a quarrelsome wife. Then in the 27th proverb, he talks again about, in verse 15, about a quarrelsome wife. He says, a quarrelsome wife is like a constant dripping on a rainy day. <laughs> That's very picturesque, but very true. And granted, it's the, it's the man's point of view, but there's truth in it. Uh, and it's true that husbands aren't as sensitive or aren't as noble or aren't as successful or aren't as loving or aren't as kind or aren't as handsome or aren't as strong and aren't as all that if they ought to be. And so you got reasons to complain. Just don't make a habit of complaining. Most of the time, ladies, you can get your way without it. You can get what you want without the complaining. And there's a legitimate way to do it. Here's an example. You know, you want to get your kitchen painted. So what do you tell your husband? I've been telling you for months that I want the kitchen painted. Oh, that's one way you can go back. Nag, 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 nag. When are you going to paint the kitchen? I want the kitchen painted. And you can get it done if you do that long enough. You wear your husband out and he'll finally do it to shut you up. But there's a better way. You can say, you know, honey, I'm still looking forward to getting the kitchen painted. <laughs> You think we can get it done by the end of next month? You know? And show some understanding for his position. And a better way than nagging is to pray and let God put the word on your husband. Okay? And if God wants your husband to do it, then he'll have the... There's nothing wrong with you suggesting it. But the difference between... In other words, to be submitted to your husband means that you have the right to submit opinions to him quite regularly. My wife does that all the time. That's part of being submitted. Doesn't mean you're a nobody and you can't say anything or share your convictions on things. But after you've done that and made clear to your husband how you feel, you ought to be willing to let it rest with him for your own welfare and his. And make it a matter of prayer. And Alice, is, she tells me every once in a while about it. And she'll laugh when it happens. She'll say, you know, I, you, I really shouldn't tell you this, but you remember six months ago when I suggested something I would have forgotten about? But she makes it a matter of prayer. Then six months later, it's my idea and the thing gets done, you see. That's a lot better way to have it happen. And the thing you have to be prepared for is that God may take your husband's side. He may say, let him alone about the kitchen. He's got enough problems, you know. That, that could happen, ladies. But anyway, don't make, it a, don't make a habit of complaining. You can achieve your goal by nagging and complaining. But I tell you, the reward is small. And it's not a very tasty reward at the end. You'll get it, but it won't satisfy you because the next thing you you start nagging about something else. And I've had women actually tell me that the only way I can get my husband to do anything is just nag, 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 nag. I'm not sure that they wouldn't be better off in their marriage if the things just didn't get done. But I know they can get done if you'll make those things a matter of prayer. And introduce God into the situation and God's priorities take effect. If God wants it done, then God is quite able, able of answering your quite able to answer your prayer and to nudge your husband to do certain things that you feel need to be done. It's praying about it makes a very good filter. It'll decide whether the priority is important or not. If you leave it up to the Holy Spirit to decide, you commit it to the Lord. Lord, I really want the kitchen painted. And uh, if it's what we need to do in the next few months, would you please tell my husband, you know, so we can get it done. And then be willing to leave it there. Well, who knows, next morning your husband may get up and say, honey, go to the hardware store and get six gallons of paint. We're going to do the kitchen tonight. But uh, that'd be a lot better way to have it happen than to nag him into it.
to achieve your goal by nagging, you'll get your goal, but you'll divide your marriage. It'll divide you from your husband. And instead of really feeling grateful, you'll just feel like you've got to go on to the next thing to nag about. Uh, second, don't. Don't criticize your husband's driving. <laughs> now that seems a little thing, but I'm giving this from a masculine point of view. You've got to realize, ladies, that any time you criticize your husband's driving, now husbands aren't to criticize their wives driving either. There's a lot of jokes about that. But we're talking about don'ts for husband, wives right now. Don't criticize your husband's driving because you don't realize it, but you're challenging his manhood when you do. <laughs> now, I don't want to get into a Greek, deep psychological study about this. All I'm saying is that's the way a guy feels. A man is very proud about his ability to handle an automobile. And he really does need your advice. Now, that doesn't mean that there's not some ways that you can exercise influence. But don't criticize your husband's driving, especially don't point out parking places on the other side of the street, okay? <laughs> you're driving around, you're looking for a parking place, you know, and the husband's temper is going up anyway because it's busy, and you very sweetly say, honey, there's one over there. <laughs> and then they're in the way under the sun he can get over there, he's not going that direction. And so all you do is send his blood pressure up about 15 points. Dewey, I think I'm getting some sort of catharsis out of this myself. <laughs> Out of sharing this. Okay. Don't criticize your husband's driving. Now, if you do have a concern, his driving may be upsetting you. You don't say, slow down, you're about to scare me to death, that sort of thing. Now, that may be that way, but you can appeal to his manhood another way. You can say, honey, I've got a bad case of jitters today. Would you just slow down a little? And so you're appealing to his consideration. You're appealing to his manhood in a proper way. And he say, oh, sure, honey, because he loves you and the foot will come up off the accelerator and he'll drive with a lot of extra caution. Okay? Don't criticize your husband's right. Another don't for women. Three, don't assume leadership even in areas where you... Uh, where you realize that he's failing or where he seems inadequate. Now, I know this is a very difficult thing to do. And a lot of women get into positions out of desperation when they say, well, my husband won't do it, I have to. And I suppose there are some legitimate cases where that has to be done. But there's some things that'd be better just to leave undone. Even though it may be inconvenient, even though it may be a little embarrassing, the, for you to move in and do those things when he's having a struggle in, in asserting or assuming leadership, for you to suddenly move in and do it can be a very humiliating thing for him. Now, you may not always realize the kind of struggle he may be having with it. Maybe he may have some psychological block about paying the bills or something. You know, well, it's right for you don't want to have the utilities cut off and so forth. So, uh, but there are ways you can handle this. You can tell him, say, honey, you know, there are certain bills, checks need to be written and so forth. But you don't have to, I'm using this just as a hypothetical example, but you don't have to get angry. You don't have to say, I, I take over the bank book and all this sort of thing and humiliate with him. Uh, Bring the check back to him and say, honey, would you write the check for the electric bill? It's $65.70. I'll put it in the mail tomorrow. Uh, there's a lot of wisdom that you can use, ladies, in getting your way in a way that continues to honor your husband. Or you can become belligerent and you can become critical and you can climb into the driver's seat in certain situations and then live a life of frustration because you're doing things that your husband will never do because as I said this morning there's only one room for one person in the driver's seat in the family and lady if you're occupying that seat there ain't no way your husband will ever be able to get in there 
And before he can begin to occupy that seat, you'll have to get out. And I've actually encouraged wives who've been frustrated with it. I said, look, just let some things go. They don't absolutely have to be done. And say to your husband, honey, I really wish you'd do this, but if you don't think it's important, I'm going to leave it in your hands, and if it gets done, you're going to do it. And you don't say that unkindly. You just say, it's up to you. Well, he may not like to pay the bills, but when the lights are shut off, uh, he may come to himself, you see, and decide, well, it's not so hard to pay the electric bills after all. Uh, there is a way to do it while you still honor your husband. In most cases where women begin to assume leadership, it's out of frustration. It's because their husbands aren't moving as well in some situations as they think they ought. Or they have a starry-eyed, ladies have a starry-eyed vision. They thought they married a, a knight in white, you know, a, white, a knight in, on a white horse and shining armor and so forth. And they find out he's not like that at all. He's a guy with all kinds of weaknesses and problems and struggles of his own and so forth. And because he tends to fall short, you tend to get frustrated. But if you'll honor him and stay as best you can under his authority and encourage him and take his perspective and pray for him and serve him and honor him to be the man you want him to be, it can make all the difference. Well, uh, I want to, there are two or three other things I could mention, but I want to move on to the conclusion. We've been going a long time. I want to make some final statements about, this is pers my personal view about marriage. Uh, and I'm speaking again out of 35 years, so I've learned some things, and that's 35 years of marriage. And the longer I contemplate and study marriage in Scripture, and the longer I'm married, the more respect I have for what, and the more enthusiastic I am about what God has done. I've come to have a very high and holy view of marriage. I think it is, in spite of what's happening in the world around us, and the increased divorce rate and all the rest. I'm grateful that God said it's not good for man to be alone. I'll make a, help, a helper to be with him, suitable for him. And my personal conviction, I realize that their case can be made for celibacy. Some men and women are called of God to live a single life. I don't believe that's the norm, of course. As was said this morning. But my personal conviction is that a man will never rise to the full divine potential that God has for him without a wife and vice versa. I think men and women are made for each other. I think that's clear from what we read in Scripture. I'd say that marriage at its highest and its best is a sacrament of grace in which the husband and wife both become divine instruments of redemption and preservation for each other. At its best, marriage is a sacrament of grace in which the, both the husband and the wife become divine instruments of redemption and preservation of one another. And years ago when I was first beginning to teach on marriage, I did a lot of thinking and praying about it, just sort of asking God to show me insights and things about it. And I came to some rather interesting conclusions. One thing I've come to realize, I believe the key to what I'm talking about has to do uh, with what I call being chosen. There's something really special about being chosen. My wife is more special and more precious to me than any other person on earth. And I believe I am to her. And I, I sense a lot of divine wonder in that that blesses both of us. And it has to do with the fact that we chose each other. That we're chosen. I know it sounds kind of romantic, but there's a lot of power and a lot of truth in it. I remember the song Jerome Kern wrote years ago. You younger people wouldn't remember his 
melodies and songs, but they're very beautiful. And there was one called uh, uh, They Don't Ever Believe Me, and it ends with uh, words that go like this. Uh, when I tell them, and I'm certainly going to tell them, that you're the girl who's, or that I'm the guy whose wife you will one day be, they'll never believe me. They'll never believe me that from this big, wide world you've chosen me. And I thought, that, that really reflects my own sentiment. And I'm grateful to God. I, I know I was the one that proposed to my wife. I chose her, but she had to choose me. She had to say yes. And when a, when a man chooses a woman for his wife and places his love upon her, something wonderful begins to happen to her because she's chosen, because she's cherished. And it's like hidden beauty and graces and noble aspirations and all kinds of charmful filled things begin to emerge in her. I don't know, physically she may not be any raving beauty, but it all has to do with that, somebody made that statement, that all brides are beautiful and all grooms are strong and handsome. It has to do with the mystery and the romance that's in marriage. It has to do with being chosen. And when she returns her husband's love or her betrothed love, she begins to love him in return Something happens to the man. Something begins to rise in him that's noble and it's good, a kind of an assurance, uh, a confidence, almost a kind of majesty begins to emerge in him. Uh, he desires to succeed. He desires to achieve for her sake. And all of the most godly, noble instincts that God puts in him will come to the surface and begin to manifest themselves when the thing happens the way God intends. Now that doesn't mean that love is blind. It doesn't mean that a wife thinks her husband is, you know, looks like Robert Redford when he doesn't. Or that a wife, husband thinks his wife looks like a Sophia Loren or somebody when she doesn't. It's not that love is blind. It's that love sees with a different set of eyes. Uh, and it all tied in with this business of the wonder being chosen. I think that's where real peace and love and a sense of God's presence with us. And Alice said something to me. I can't quote exactly, but I've written it down as best I can remember it because it's made such an impact on me. She said, I want you to know how blessed I feel. She said, because without your love and your care and your encouragement, I would never have amounted to much. And she went on to say, whatever I've managed to become as a wife or a mother, I believe it's because of God's grace extended to me through your love. And I feel exactly the same way about her. She's my best friend, my most noble companion. She's the lifter of my head. Without her, I don't think I would have ever preached a sermon or taught a scripture message or written a book or had a ministry. And. Uh, It's because of what she's been to me through those years. And I've come to see that I experience, through her love and confidence in me, I experience God's love and confidence in me. I think that's what the sacrament of marriage is about. And that's why it's so important for us to understand and believe in the sacrament of marriage, that what God has joined together don't let any man put us under. Amen? Amen.